0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Today our guest is Professor Maha Maslod, who is assistant professor at the University of Arizona's School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies. She received her PhD from the University of Chicago in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, her master's from the University of Chicago Middle Eastern Studies, and her bachelor's from Benedictine University. Her interests lie in nationalism, religion in the Middle East, language and culture in the Middle East, Arabs and Muslims in the United States, women and gender in Islam in the Middle East. And she's the author of many articles, contributions to edited uh, volumes, and a book out 2017 from Stanford University Press, Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question, a sort of an intellectual biography. How did you come to the study of the Middle East? How did this book come about?
1: Okay. So I grew up as a, in the Palestinian-American community of Chicago, uh, Chicago area. It was a huge Palestinian-American community, and I grew up very aware of my identity as a Palestinian-American Muslim, and also the juxtaposition between my understandings and interpretations of the world around me and what I was hearing from friends and family and what I would see on television media, particularly during the Intifada, during the Oslo period, and so forth. And so I was always really fascinated by the two very different worldviews that I would that were juxtaposed uh, as I was growing up, and I was really struck by this difference. And I was also, as I got older and you know thinking about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to study, I became interested in sort of exploring this a bit further. So my undergraduate, I didn't study too much on the Middle East, it was mostly English literature, but when I was thinking about grad school, I definitely became more interested in thinking about Middle East specifically. So, I went to the University of Chicago and um, I was very fortunate that we had Professor Rashid Khalidi at the time there. So, I studied with him for my master's and my PhD. Um, in the course of that, I, I sort of came upon wanting to study Palestinian history, but I wasn't sure exactly what and it, what aspect of it. And then, ironically, it was while I was taking Hebrew, I was reading an Translating an essay by uh, Anton Shamas, who's a well-known Palestinian novelist and writer, who's also a citizen of Israel. He was writing about his and his community's sort of experiences and perspectives. And as I was translating it and kind of struggling through the Hebrew, I realized that I knew next to nothing about this community. I knew so much about Palestinians in exile. I knew so much about Palestinians under occupation. But I knew next to nothing about Palestinians who were citizens of Israel, and I really wanted to remedy that. So I kept reading more and more about them, and as I was reading secondary literature about them and trying to think about and settle on a specific dissertation topic, I realized that much of the literature about them is done from the perspective of political science and sociology, but not much has done had been done on them in terms of examining their own histories, their own worldviews, their own writings. Individual writers like Mahmoud Darwish and Amir Habibi had been talked about in a biographical context, but not collectively as an intellectual subject.
0: That's how I ended up studying that particular subject. Well, No, I I especially appreciate that because I very much grew up with these figures as, you know, isolated. And, And Darwish in particular is emphasized as a figure who, I mean, his exile period is, is almost overemphasized in at least the Palestinian memory of the of of, of him um, and his role in the PLO. And to some extent, that's that's merited because of different political um, contexts. But I think you really draw him in particular. He's on the cover of the book. Um, there's two images of him on the book. Um, And uh, I think you really draw him well into the context of what it was like to be a Palestinian citizen of Israel uh, post-1948, especially because he intersects with so many different ideologies. And I think we often forget that because he's sort of crowned the great Palestinian national poet. Um, So to take us a step back, because I think what I really appreciated about the book was I opened it thinking, okay, it's going to start – after 1948, 1948 being what Palestinians remember as the Nakba or the catastrophe, which is sort of the, which is also the establishment of the state of Israel um, and the war of independence as it's remembered in Israeli public memory, um, particularly Israeli Jewish public memory. Uh, but one of the chapters actually, this really wonderful chapter is about the pre-1948 period. And I was wondering if you could, we could sort of use this to set the stage for us, sort of what does Palestine look like before 1940 and after 1948? And if you could, give us a grander definition, uh, a more detailed definition of what the NECBA is for our listeners.
1: Sure. So, When I started, let me tell a little bit more about how I came to study this particular angle of intellectual history and cultural history of the Palestinians. And so it's an outgrowth of the work that I was doing um, for my dissertation as a graduate student. So I decided, okay, I want to read about their history and their literature on their own terms. And so I'm going to go to their newspapers and journals. And as I started doing that and going through it systematically, I realized that they were very engaged with and attuned to contemporary intellectual political and cultural debates in the rest of the Arab world, in Egypt and Iraq and elsewhere. And they were also very keen on emphasizing their own Arab literary and cultural heritage, going back to the early 20th century and even going back to the classical period. And so I was struck by their engagement with not just the state of Israel, although they did plenty of that as well, but also their engagement with and their their attention to broader Arab cultural literary debates and also Arab cultural literary um, heritage and history. And so understanding how that came to be and how it was that they were so invested in that in the 1950s and 60s which it's important to remember, that was a time when they were quite physically isolated. So Palestinian citizens of Israel could not travel to the Arab world. Um, Arab citizens couldn't travel into Israel. So they were very sort of cut off physically, geographically speaking. And yet they were very much engaged with these older historical periods and, and debates and writers and thinkers and so forth. So for the book, I thought it was important to understand the context of how that came to be. And in doing so, I found that Palestine, pre-1948 Palestine, from the late Ottoman period through the British Mandate period, was really central to the intellectual, cultural, um, and political dynamics of the region. You had a lot of intellectuals who were traveling from Lebanon to Syria to Palestine to Egypt. They'd go on book tours. They'd give interviews and lectures Um, They would write in different newspapers. The circulation of newspapers and journals was also something that was quite robust at that time, which was a surprise to me. Um, And so there were a lot of ways in which you had kind of broader circulation of Arab ideas, and Palestine was really integral to that. So intellectuals and um, sort of up-and-coming uh, intellectuals and those who are educated and even like high school students who we typically don't think of as intellectuals, but they very much were engaged with these intellectual um, traditions. They were very much keen on learning about what was happening in Lebanon or what was happening in Syria, that kind of thing. In addition, you had a number of Palestinians who went abroad for university, uh, either college or university to Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt par- particularly, and there they also became engaged with and got to know other Arab intellectuals and their um, causes and their perspectives as well. So that means that by the time we get to sort of the eve of the 1948 war, there's this long several decades now of really keen intellectual engagement of which Palestine is seen as, as one part of a broader whole. So Palestinians themselves saw their struggle against the british and against zionism and the zionist movement and the expulsion of palestinians as having some unique elements that were unique to the palestinians but sharing with other elements that other um, intellectuals in the arab east were fighting against particularly colonial control over their country so that means that by the time we get to 1948 and the nekba and the war that emerges Initially, you have the struggle between Zionist forces in Palestine and then Palestinian Arab irregulars who are seeking to defend their villages and towns, trying to forestall the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. And when that is not successful, and you have hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees streaming into the surrounding Arab countries in the spring of 1948, um, then in May, on May 14th of 1948, when Israel declares its independence, we see Arab um, armies coming in to, um, to try to forestall the creation of the State of Israel, but also trying to defend their own borders from these refugees who are coming into their countries. And we know that that also wasn't successful. And so you have the State of Israel that was established in um, 1948 and then recognized by the UN in 1949. But as a result, you ended up with about 750,000 Palestinian refugees, but not all of them left. Some of them ended up staying in what became the state of Israel, ultimately, um, within a few years, getting citizenship, although it was um, not of equal status as Jewish
0: citizens of Israel. One thing I really enjoyed about the book was... um, the title itself, actually, the fact that you use the term Palestinian citizens of Israel, because one we hear quite a lot is Arab Israelis. Um, and oftentimes it, it, it's it's difficult because you want to give people agency when you're talking about them. And sometimes this feels like when you have these conversations with Palestinian citizens of Israel, as you put it, um, a lot of them reject this idea of being Arab Israeli because they feel this connection to this Palestinian history of being displaced, of this um, sort of trauma of eventually achieving Israeli citizenship, but of course, being second class citizens and even third class citizens. Um, So I was wondering if you could sort of break down to us sort of what the intellectual genealogy, the historiography around the terms Arab Israeli and Palestinian citizen of Israel is and what the political implications are sort of what this says about the way the academy talks about these individuals and these peoples.
1: Sure. So Arab-Israeli was the commonly used term in much of Western academia. It's still used commonly in Israel today and by some Western intellectuals. And it reflects two things. One, it reflects the Israeli state project of trying to integrate Palestinian citizens of Israel, or what they would call Arab-Israelis, into a kind of Zionist vision of Israel as this tapestry of different ethnic and religious groups that are all Israeli. So you have different religious groups, Muslim Israelis, Christian Israelis, Jewish Israelis. You have different ethnicities, Arab Israeli, Jewish Israeli, Mizrahi Israeli, Ashkenazi Israeli, Circassian Israeli. But it was all done as a way of diminishing or downplaying or even erasing the specific nationalist commitments that one particular group, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, had uh, that was a legacy of the pre-1948 period as Palestinian nationalists and Arab nationalists. But That was also part of an attempt to cut off so-called Arab Israelis from the rest of the Arab world. So they were going to be distinct, and they were going to be not part of the Arab world, but rather part of Israel. That was the goal. The term Arab-Israeli was also commonly used for many decades because of the pan-Arab commitments of many of those intellectuals themselves, who often they themselves would refer to themselves as Arab citizens of Israel or Arab Israelis. Um, over the last couple of decades, however, things have changed. Uh, Palestinian, The Palestinian distinctiveness as a national identity and national commitment has become much more salient among this particular group of people, and especially among the intellectuals among them. And so for them, and there's been sociological work that's been done, kind of survey work that shows that intellectuals today from this community prefer terms that foreground their Palestinian identity, either Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, Palestinians inside, meaning inside the green line, uh, those kinds of terms, or even sometimes the term 48 Arabs or, or 48 Palestinians, referring to the idea that they're in that territory that was uh, conquered by Israel and established as Israel in 1948. So I think of it as a way of both honoring the current political climate and the political commitments of contemporary viewers and also as a way to avoid anachronisms. So for example, if I were writing a history of the civil rights movement, I may quote a civil rights leader referring to his community or her community as the Negro community, but I myself would not use that term today. And so similarly, I use the term Palestinian citizens of Israel to reflect the current political commitments and the current identities of the people that I'm talking about.
0: Now, I really appreciate that because that gives such agency to your characters and then also allows for their intellectual descendants to be represented as well. Um, So one thing I really enjoyed about the book is that you... Are very explicit about your intellectual and historiographical approaches and commitments. And one that I I really enjoyed, and in fact I quoted earlier today, was the concept of the organic intellectual. Um, And the way you apply this Palestinian history is so apt simply because of the way intellectual production um, was geared towards particular goals. So I was wondering, um, how did you feel that this traditional treatment Uh, How did you feel that the traditional treatment of the Palestinian intellectual and the historiography, you already mentioned that they're very biographical approaches, um, could be supplemented or revised by your approach?
1: So much of the history of Palestinians, much of Palestinian history is really grounded in either political history or social history. And as such, political actors and social groups tend to be the main lens of analysis in any given historical work on on Palestinian history. And to the extent that intellectuals are talked about, as I said before, they're usually talked about as individuals or sometimes as like literary writers, poets or novelists and that kind of thing. But as I was going through their writings, I became acutely aware of how conscious they were themselves of their social place as intellectuals and as cultural producers. So the Arabic term for intellectual, and the Arabic word for culture, which is taqafah, are both very similar in Arabic. They're etymologically linked, and they re- would refer to themselves very explicitly as "we, the intellectuals." Believe that such and such, but they weren't intellectuals in what we would often think of as the Western sort of use of the term. They, because of the discrimination they faced, and because of the political strictures they had to endure, it's not like they had you know named professorial chairs in Ivy League towers and universities. And they didn't necessarily want that. They saw their intellectual commitment very much as a pragmatic one that was aimed at helping their community on the ground face and overcome the various forms of discrimination they faced, whether it was discrimination in the workplace, whether it was land confiscation, whether it was travel restrictions, whether it was restrictions on other forms of mobility. So they very much saw their project of writing and publishing um, and speaking, public speaking, as an intellectual commitment that had on-the-ground implications. And they didn't see any contradiction between being an intellectual and being an activist. And that's very much what Gramsci was talking about when he talked about organic intellectuals. And so I thought the, the description was quite apt in this case.
0: Now what I like about that is it democratizes intellectual history, which is traditionally thought of, it sort of falls into the business of uh, placing ideas within a hierarchy and then only treating, at least in the Western tradition, largely treating the ideas of individuals, not necessarily have had the most who have both had impact, but are considered to be first rate thinkers, uh, for lack of a better word, people of quality ideas. And I think what, what what this term does is really look at people who actually have an, aff- an effect on people um, within their societies and, and think uh, and write with an aim towards doing that. and I think the um we'll talk about this in a bit. the role of of poetry, in particular in Palestinian culture um, is so acute that you can't help but realize that this is about sort of democratizing um, these what an idea is and 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 how powerful it can be and whether it's worth studying. Um, something else that you noted, and you, you mentioned in passing a few moments ago, was that uh, Palestinian history is normally written from a very political perspective. And you actually quote um, Ibrahim Abu Lughod at some point at the, in the introduction, where you say that you, um, the perspective you espouse is sort of pushing back against, to quote him here, the pitfalls of Palestinology. Um, I was wondering if you could break that down for us and also emphasize to us why it's so important and how one can do so.
1: Sure. So Ibrahim al was a uh, famous Palestinian-American scholar. And in the early 80s, he wrote an article that was titled The Pitfalls of of Palestinianology. And in it, he talked about a tendency in Palestine studies, which is important to remember back in the early 80s it was still in its infancy. But as it was starting to emerge as a field of study, he warned against the idea of only looking at Palestinian culture, society, politics, history through the lens of the Palestinian confrontation with Zionism or the lens of the Palestinian confrontation with the British. And that. And he was calling for scholars to look at Palestinian culture and society on their own terms, in, in the terms of um, not as a dependent, Variable, but as an independent variable that could be examined in its own terms. And that, I think many scholars over the last 30 years have taken heed of that uh, advice and have pushed uh, Palestinian scholarship in really interesting ways. But I thought as I was looking at the literatures on specifically Palestinian citizens of Israel, that that dyad of looking at Palestinian history through the lens of their engagement with Israel or Israel's treatment of them, left some more room for, for different perspectives. And it's more challenging in the, for this particular group to avoid the pitfalls of palestinology, in part because of sources. Uh, most people, when they study Palestinian citizens of Israel, they go to the logical place, which is to go to the Israeli state archives. But in doing so, uh, one becomes um, relatively constrained or at least particularly guided towards looking at state-minority relations. And I really wanted to move past that. And so it's a much more challenging project because there is no Palestinian archive, state archive that one can go to. And because the post-war archives of the other Arab countries are more or less inaccessible to, to researchers. So it was a very uh, tedious process of collecting material from here and there, from various libraries In the U.S., in the Middle East, talking to people, uh, asking to take pictures of people's private collections. It's a more arduous task, but I think it's one that is uh, that was that was well worth it.
0: Um, No, I think it's one that I think also um, the task of writing an intellectual history. One really does have to construct one's own archive because you can't go to a state archive and you're completely right. Um, I think. scholars of Palestine have to think very creatively and then reread other sources in order to uncover other things. Um, so one thing I really appreciated about your book was the fact that it considered the place of these Palestinians intellectuals. This isn't simply just um, a history of uh, intellectuals who are Palestinian citizens of Israel. This is specifically considering them within the lens of their relationship with the greater Arab world. So sort of to frame this very vaguely and again, set the stage What are the lines that you saw, especially in the post-1948 period, between Palestinian identity and Arab identity? That's a
1: great question. And it's one that is very fluid because it changed depending, uh, it would change from year to year, and it would also change depending on which particular intellectuals you were talking about. So the sort of rise and fall, or maybe the rise and, and transformation of Palestinian identity was very much tied to events that were happening in the Arab world. And so when, for example, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal and then withstood the British-French-Israeli military assault that was subsequent to that and became this huge uh, hero in the Arab world, he was also a major hero for lots of Palestinian citizens of Israel. And when he nationalized the Suez, it was likewise. And when, a couple of years later... Uh, there was a cleavage in and tension in the Arab world between Nasserists and Pan-Arab nationalists on the one hand, and then communists on the other hand. Those tensions were also felt among Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then later on, as the PLO and as Palestinians in exile be, uh, start to assert a distinctive Palestinian identity that's juxtaposed to an Arab identity more clearly in the mid to late 60s, again, we see that reverberating among younger Palestinian intellectuals inside Israel. So you can see a kind of mirroring in many ways of the larger transformations of Palestinian identity in the region. You see it mirrored within and among different Palestinian intellectuals within Israel itself. So it's a very fluid. And part of what I was really fascinated by was this fluidity, this kind of back and forth that we see both within a particular intellectual's own thinking. Someone like Mahmoud Darwish who undergoes different changes over the course of the 10 years or so that I examine his writings, but then also among different uh, parties and people and ideal- ideological
0: commitments as well. Um, so you had mentioned communism and socialism, um, in passing again, just a few minutes ago. So I was wondering again, if you could sort of, uh, explain to us what's happening on the ground, um, within the, the state of Israel in the 1950s, um, two Palestinians who engage with communist socialist movements, because it's actually quite a unique situation. Um, the CP, yeah, the CPI and in and, and particular the communist party of Israel.
1: So the, So when the state of Israel is created, they create the the state itself allows for multiple parties to form, but within certain constraints. And most parties are Zionist political parties. There are a couple of exceptions. One of one exception is the Communist Party of Israel which was at the the formation of the state of Israel in the late 40s, early 50s, it was the only non-Zionist political party that allowed for Palestinian citizens to be free and equal members. So their leadership lists when they ran, their their cadres themselves stressed Arab-Jewish equality and Arab-Jewish brotherhood. And that was a legacy of the earlier communist movement of the pre-48 period throughout the Arab world uh, that I talk about in that first chapter. So as a result of this, the Communist Party was sort of the one legal political outlet for Palestinian activists and intellectuals who wanted to criticize the state, uh, but wanted to do so within a recognized political party that that they could run for office and vote in and uh, vote into office and so forth. But the Palestinian citizens of Israel were always a minority within the, com- the larger Communist Party of Israel. And they had to accede to certain parameters, political parameters, such as accepting the state of Israel, accepting that they had expanded their borders beyond the area that was allocated to them by the UN. And those positions put them at odds with other Arab nationalists and even some Palestinian intellectuals in Israel itself. So many of the leaders of the Communist Party of Israel who are Palestinian were communists before 1948, and they carried those ideological commitments over into the early 1950s, mid-1950s. As we move to the later 1950s and get to the 1960s, a new generation of Palestinian citizens of Israel emerges, and they, some of them joined the Israeli Communist Party but they're not as ideologically committed to communism's to internationalism as the earlier generation was. And they use the, Israel, the, the CPI more as a vehicle for um, political protests, as a vehicle for political expression, rather than being ideologically committed to communism. And that draws out a kind of generational gap that I also discuss in the book that highlights these differences, particularly because the younger generation is coming up at a time when nationalism, both Nasserism and Palestinian nationalism, is on the rise. And so this creates a tension between the older and younger generation of, of activists.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the word activism, uh, the term, because I think that often when we write about individuals who we term activists or um, different modes of resistance, um or subservent, um, or, or very subversive acts against um, state machinery, we can often muddle them, um, and I think that there's a significant uh, amount of overlap. But again, there can be it can be muddled. So I was wondering, perhaps, uh, how would you orient the theme of resistance um, within the context of these Palestinian intellectuals? Um, because it, it is also quite a difficult thing, because resistance changes depending on. Context of resistance in Palestinian history. So, if it's resistance against the British um, in the 1930s during the great Arab revolt of 36 to 39, um, I often think of the fact that that came from rural populations. But when I think about it 60 years in the future, and I think about that in the context of, and you mentioned earlier, the first Intifada, I think about the concept of or resilience, and I affiliate that with resistance and and I twin the the concepts together. But then you flash forward another 15 years and you get to the second intifada, and the idea of resistance also has a different texture to it. So how does it feel and look like um, in the 1950s?
1: So resistance in the 1950s and 60s among Palestinian citizens of Israel takes on a number of different forms. We have uh, evidence of an episodes of mass mobilization and mass popular resistance, but those are often very quickly shut down by the Israelis. It's, uh, I think, important to remember that from 1948 to 1966, Palestinian citizens of Israel were under military government. They were effectively under martial law that prohibited large-scale gatherings and protests. So the very act of protesting, similar to what we see with Palestinians in the West Bank subsequently, and the occupied territories, uh, mass protests were by and large quashed uh, by the Israelis, particularly in the 1950s, but also moving forward as well. In addition, you had other forms of restriction on movement. You had a past system in the early 1950s that required permits, Palestinians were required to have permits to go from town one town to another, one village to another, go to their work. Those that, per, that permit system was lifted in the late 1950s but for the general population, but was applied more selectively to anyone who was deemed a troublemaker, an intellectual, an activist, someone who was both. And so people like Mahmoud Darwish and Srinivas Qasim would find themselves under house arrest, under nighttime curfew, and that kind of thing. So the mass mobilizations that we often associate with Palestinian resistance took place but at a smaller scale than what we have seen what we might see in other contexts either before or after this period. But another form of resistance that they were very keen on deploying because they had the they had more ability to do so was the sort of resistance at the culture and intellectual levels. So for them, resistance also included, teaching their students and teaching their children, the next generation, what it means to be a Palestinian, what it means to be an Arab, what it means to be to take pride in their cultural and civilizational legacy. And that was a form of resistance because the Israeli educational system that was put in place after 1948 was very keen on emphasizing Jewish cultural history and the Jewish cultural legacy, and downplaying the Arab counterpart to that. And so for them, even having an article in a newspaper or a journal that talked about famous figures in Arab history, that talked about the legacy of Arab um, politics or Arab uh, cultural expression, uh, high Arabic literature, all of those things were also a form of resistance for them because they were a way of instilling pride in the Palestinian minority in Israel. And another form of resistance they also undertook was to try to raise regional and global awareness about their cause. And here the transnational aspect of their project I think is especially important to talk about. So when we talk about Palestinian citizens of Israel and the historiography on them as I said before, often talks about their engagement with the Israeli state. So they're talked about within the confines of the Israeli state. But these intellectuals were very keen on linking their own struggles at the cultural and intellectual levels, political level. They were very keen on linking those struggles with other um, decolonizing struggles that they saw in other parts of the Arab world and in the larger third world as well. And so those larger cultural decolonization Moments and movements very much resonated with the Palestinian intellectuals inside Israel and informed their type of political resistance. So, for example, you have Arabic translations in the local communist press, you have translations of poems by Pablo Neruda, uh, Nazim Hikmet, uh, Lorca, and others who were well known as um, sort of leftist poets, but who are also seen as inspiration for a kind of anti-colonial assertion of cultural pride. And so that was another form of resistance that they also have. And then finally, um, as you mentioned before, with Sumud, they very much saw themselves as undertaking Sumud as a form of resistance as well. There were ongoing forms of land confiscation and and projects of land confiscation well after the 1948 war. And there was a lot of mobilization both on the ground,
0: um, in the Knesset, as well as intellectually to try to forestall that. So you'd mentioned, again, the decolonization decolonization movements globally and and, and how it fits into this more um, global history of of, of solidarity. And we continue to see this to this very day with um, affiliations between Black Lives Matter um, here in the United States and um, the Palestinian cause. So I was wondering specifically about – what different manifestations, sort of what is the Palestinian um, citizen of Israel take on decolonization, especially because, you know, there today one word that is thrown around to describe the current state of Israel, and this is because of the settlements being built up in the West Bank, uh, the ongoing construction um, since the, the mid-1970s, um, is, is is colonial, neocolonial. Um, so what's how is that term being, how, how is this inter- um, interpretation of colonialism being, um, uh, m- uh, molded by Palestinian uh, intellectuals, citizens of Israel, um, in in your period, so they were.
1: They didn't use the term colonial specifically to re- refer to the state of Israel, both because it would have been beyond the pale politically, it would have gotten them in quite a bit of trouble. Uh, the closest that any group came to explicitly uh, calling Israel colonial uh, colonial power. Was the Ard movement, which is a Pan Arab nationalist movement, that emerges in the in 1960 and then is crushed, and then emerges again in 1964 and is uh, quashed again? Uh, they they came the closest, but they also earned the ire of the state as a result of that. Instead, what most or of the organic intellectuals that I talk about the way that they frame and discuss colonization and decolonization was more indirectly. And they adopted a more expansive conceptual framework of colonization and decolonization by looking at the parallels between their societies and other societies that were under various manifestations of colonial rule, whether in the Arab world, whether in Africa, whether in Asia. And so they instead, what they did was they expanded their understanding of decolonization to be more of a cultural intellectual project. So unlike, for example, the the PLO and Palestinian guerrilla movements that framed their anti-colonial movement in the language of national liberation and establishing an independent state, These intellectuals that I discussed, the Palestinian intellectuals in Israel, they didn't do that. They weren't calling for secession or they weren't calling for an independent state. But instead, they were adopting some of the language and some of the broader conceptual paradigms of uh, intellectuals like the Negritude co-founders, Leopold Sanger and Amy Cesari, who adopted a more universalistic understanding of what it would mean to throw off the shackles of imperialism and colonialism, meaning that that would be an environment or a world in which everyone lived as equals, with dignity, with um, with all of their rights intact. So they played, they had to sort of uh, thread the needle a little bit in terms of, on the one hand, drawing comparisons between their own situation and and other colonial situations and anti-colonial movements like uh, Algeria, like the Congo, like Cuba, like other parts of the world. But they refrained by and large from explicitly calling Israel a colonial power because they uh, knew that that would bring them a lot of trouble. And because I think they also were reluctant to do so on a conceptual level because they were citizens and because they had rights, they were trying to sort of straddle this balance.
0: So we've been speaking a lot about intellectuals and we've been speaking about these ideas. Um, But one thing I think that um, any intellectual historian thinks about is is mediums, Um, both in terms of the physical mediums that allow for relationships between people on a transnational and global and regional level, um, but also sort of what genre of writing do these uh, forms of intellectual engagement Take shape in. Um, so, in particular, how are mediums changing and remaining unchanged by the developing relationships between these Palestinian citizens of Israel and the rest of the arab Arabic speaking world? So the main
1: medium that or the medium that had the longest legs that had the furthest reach was poetry. And in particular, free verse poetry, which was pioneered in Iraq, mid nineteen. 40s and early 50s. And as a result of uh, Iraqi Jewish intellectuals who had to flee Iraq in the 1950s, they brought with them um, D1s, poetry collections of some of these free verse poets, helping usher in or introduce free verse poetry to some of these poets, um, up and coming poets from among the Palestinians in Israel. And so free verse poetry, which then takes on larger cachet in much of the region, uh, is also becomes a medium for which or through which Palestinian writers in Israel are able to um, convey their ideas and ultimately reach a larger audience. And because of the shortness of the poems, because of the the sort of pithiness and the uh, comprehensibility, of the free verse poems themselves, those are the ones that end up traveling beyond the borders. And they do so in a number of ways. And sometimes uh, texts, newspapers and journals and poetry collections are snuck across the border. Sometimes, um, and then once those texts are snuck across the border, you had some Palestinians in exile who would then sort of spread the word either through the radio or most famously, Hassan Kanafani, a well-known Palestinian critic and uh, novelist, who was living in Beirut at the time, wrote the first study about these poets and about their work that was then published in a major um, Beirut-based newspaper that then spread throughout the, the Arab world. So poetry becomes the, the sort of um, introduction of these intellectuals to the broader Arab world. And then after the 1967 defeat, the Arab defeat in the 1967 or Six-Day War, poetry becomes a renewed mode of um, hope and inspiration among the defeated Arab intellectuals who feel a great um, sense of, of shock and sadness. And so they turn to these poets who they dub the resistance poets, Mahmoud Darwish, al Qasim, Tawfiq Zayed, Salem Jibran, and others as a source of inspiration. In other words, they say, well, if these Palestinians inside Israel uh, are able to produce this kind of hope and resistance and defiance in the wake of the previous war in which they were defeated and crushed, perhaps we can learn something from them after this defeat in 1967.
0: So I like to tell my students sometimes that the history of the post-war period, that is post-1945, in the Middle East is sort of the history of Gamal Abdel Nasser, and you mentioned him in passing um, a few times. He's, he's the Egyptian president from 1952 onwards into um, the late 60s, uh, and he appears here in a few select places. And he's very well known because he had a, a radio station where he, um, in particular, engaged in... in, in diplomatic warfare with Jordan, for example. So uh, I was wondering about his impact in particular on Palestinian intellectuals or citizens of Israel because his role in the Middle East does change very much over the the course of his presidency.
1: It does. Uh, And his, also his rise and fall, Nasser's rise and fall in the Arab world is also mirrored in many ways in terms of his reception by Palestinian intellectuals in Israel. So in at the as he's the rising ascendant, in particular in 1956 with the nationalization of the Suez Canal, uh, there are many sources and memoirs and others that document the thrill that came over politically engaged Palestinians in in um, in Israel, that they shared with other Arabs that, that immense pride, that immense feeling of hope that finally you have an Arab leader who would be able to stand up to Western uh, bullies and bulliness and be a source of pride and inspiration for the Arab world. And then when the fallout between the Nasserists and the communists takes shape in the late 50s and early 60s, again, you see that reverberating on the pages of the different newspapers and journals inside Israel. You have Nasserists who are... um, so in here, it's a little bit different because you couldn't be too overtly Nasserist inside Israel, given Israel's uh, hostility towards Nasser and, um, and Nasserism as a whole. I mentioned the Ard group earlier and how they had gotten shut down. They were the most explicitly pro-Nasser group that came out, that, was, that emerged during this time. And they uh, tested the limits and found the limits, you could say, of acceptable Israeli political discourse. The Israelis were also keen on trying to take advantage of Nasser's uh, missteps, and particularly cases when Nasser was, um, was defeated after 67. There was a bit of uh, Schadenfreude, you could say, in a lot of Israeli intellectual circles. But Palestinians also felt the sting of that defeat as well, and were very keen on trying to um, sort of ameliorate that as best they could. So, yes, the the rise and fall of Nasser in the Arab world mirrors in some ways, although departs in other ways from uh, the rise and fall of his reputation
0: among Palestinian citizens of Israel. So, again, congratulations on the book. It is such an accomplishment, I think, simply as even a map of Palestinian intellectuals um, who are also citizens of Israel in the post-1948 period. Even before that, it just works as a tremendous... Intellectual source. So, congratulations on the book. Um, so, to close the interview, I normally ask, "What are you currently working on?" I mean, any sorts of projects you're working on right now. What are you looking forward to putting out there?
1: So, I have a couple of projects I'm working on. You had mentioned uh, a little while ago about solidarity between Palestinians and Black Lives Matter. One of the things that I found when I was working on this book was that that history of solidarity actually goes further back than the recent expressions of solidarity over the last few years. So one project I'm working on is examining this earlier history that goes back, in some ways it goes back a century, Uh, actually to the 1920s, where you have African American leftists and Palestinian leftists who are getting together in the Soviet Union and and sort of exchanging ideas. And then there's another sort of moment in the 1960s in particular, where Palestinians are also looking at the um, civil rights movement, particularly Palestinian citizens of Israel. I found an an essay that Mahmoud Darwish wrote in which he talked about reading James Baldwin's um, essay and book, Nobody Knows My Name, and how he felt it spoke to him. So that history of uh, Black-Palestinian intellectual exchange is one project that I'm working on. And then a larger book project that I'm working on, in some ways, is a sequel to this book. I'm interested in examining the intra-Palestinian debates about the formation of a Palestinian state, what what shape that would take, particularly looking at the period from 1968 to the present. And I really want to make sure to integrate Palestinian intellectuals in Israel into that debate, because they had a lot to say, as you might imagine. Uh, and so right now, our, our history really talks about it more as like uh, PLO debates or debates within or among the different factions. And I want to broaden that discussion to see how Palestinians who didn't necessarily have a formal political uh, position were seat how they conceptualized and conceived of Palestinian liberation and statehood in the post-67 era.
0: Those both sound like really exciting and necessary projects. Um, So the best of luck and thank you so much for sitting down with me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.